Welcome to the Not Your Average My podcast, where four Hmong American women working to move our community forward one conversation at a time. So tune in every month with Liz, Mania, Monica, and Katie as we dive into politics, pop culture, and all things related to being Hmong American. Let's get it! Hi, listeners. Happy New Year and welcome back to our fresh new episode from Now Your Average My. We are super, super excited today because we have a very special guest um, to talk about mental health and among a larger Asian American community. And it's also very timely, especially with this pandemic that is going on. We, you know, this topic has been one of interest for a really long time, even when we first started this podcast, but we knew that we wanted to be very prepared and actually be able to provide very helpful information and resources to you all. So it took a while to plan for this, but we're super excited um, to welcome K.O. Vane, uh, who is a mental health mental health clinician at Kaiser Permanente to our podcast to really help us understand mental health and how to seek services within the Hmong and larger Asian American community. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, you know, before we dive into our conversation, do you want to share a little bit about yourself and your day job? And really, you know, what inspired you to become a mental health clinician? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. And um, I actually want to thank you all for um, uh, for the great work uh, that you're doing. It's... Um, um, it is important to have platforms um, like this one uh, to spread awareness uh, regarding um, important topics in in our community. And uh, so uh, my name is K.O. Vang. Um, I'm a licensed therapist, and I've been working with Kaiser for the past um, five and a half years in the adult outpatient uh, mental health uh, department. I have experience working with uh, folks uh, diagnosed or suffer from challenges with anxiety, uh, depression, mood, personality, uh, schizophrenia, and adjustment disorders. I also teach a, uh, a coping skills class uh, within my clinic as well. And so originally, I, um, I didn't think that I was going to um, become a mental health clinician. I was actually planning to go into probation with uh, my master's in social work. And after working with, um, with youth and um, engaging them in the clinical approach, I actually um, come to realize that, you know what, like I actually want to be a part of the healing process and not be a part of a... Um, a containment or a management approach to um, um, to probation, and so that was when I shifted um, my approach and, and and started working in the clinical field. And I've I've been in the clinical field since then. So I actually want to put out a uh, disclaimer: my participation in this podcast is not on behalf of Kaiser. Um, today I will be sharing my personal and professional experience in the mental health field. Additionally, I also want to uh, caution our viewers um, that some of the topics uh, for today could be triggering. And I encourage you all to take breaks um, and come back when you, uh, when you feel you're ready to continue. Awesome. Speaking like a true therapist. Love yeah. it. <laughs> you know. and, yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, I, uh, before we jump into the next question, I just want to say, like, I, I think I've known you since I was probably 15 or 16. Um, and then we went to Berkeley for undergrad together. So you've always been like an older brother. And, you know, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today, because I feel like you have a lot of insight to share with our community about mental health. And we know how important mental health support is. Um, so we, you know, before we jump into like, talking about ser uh, services and support, can we kind of define what mental health entails, right? Because, you know, research shows that one in five adults experience a mental health condition. So for our listeners who might not understand this term, uh, what, what is inclusive in this term mental health condition? And what does what does that mean? Before I go and talk about uh, what is actually inclusive in the mental health condition, um, I want to sort of just put some context to what mental health is. Uh, so based on the World Health uh, Organization, 
Uh, mental health is defined as a state of well-being in which the individual realizes their own abilities, can cope with the normal stressors of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to their community. If we think about it, um, this is actually the way that we experience the world as a human being. And the way that I conceptualize this is that there are three, um, three factors here, right? That there's biological factors that affect our um, mental well-being. And that includes uh, genes, brain chemistry, hormones within our body. And so the biology is constantly trying to seek uh, equilibrium to support our mental health or, or our overall well-being. Now, our mental health is also impacted by our psychology, the way that we think, the thoughts that we have, the emotions, the way that we, um, we derive values and goals. That has a huge impact on our emotional well-being. And then the third thing is this inter-relational inter, uh, transaction that happens with our social uh, factors. And this has to do with friends, uh, re um, religious groups, our career. And so with these three components, um, they have a huge impact on just the way that we feel uh, about ourselves and our um, overall well-being. Now, um, where does this come in when it becomes a condition? It's recognizing that it's one of these components that are impacted or a combination of these components are impacted uh, to an extended amount of time where it's affecting the way that we're feeling about ourselves. Okay, so our sense of self-worth, our confidence, um, our motivation, or it's affecting our relationships the way that we're connecting to others. Um, and then the third component is um, the way that we feel like we're completing our tasks. If we're feeling like we're unable to um, uh, to uh, have a sense of purpose with the way that we engage in activities, uh, that also has an impact on our uh, emotional well-being. That's where it becomes a condition, is that with these human experiences, with our biology, psychology, and social, is that uh, when these areas are impacted to an extended amount of time in the three domains of self-worth, uh, relationships, and goals, then that's when it becomes a condition, a mental health condition or a mental illness. And those two mental illness and mental conditions are used um, interchangeably. Great. Thank, thank you for that. Um, I think I think that is really helpful context because I think when people think about mental health, they, they kind of assume that it's on like the extreme end, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm thinking about suicide or, you know, I'm so depressed that I can't get out of bed. You know, for folks who've been working in the field, like there's always this terminology or this phrase that mental health exists on a continuum. Um, so, you know, relating back to what you have shared before, can you help kind of clarify what that means and um, to really help us unpack what what is inclusive within um, mental health? So the mental health con continuum is recognizing that at any point in time, the, the human experience or the what's happening is that we live on a continuum. And uh, this continuum is inclusive of our baseline, right? Like our equilibrium, our balance. And from that balance, uh, we experience the world. Um, whether if it's internally or externally, is that that balance gets aroused or gets... Um, so that balance, what happens is that that balance... Uh, increases or so it becomes hyper aroused or hypo aroused uh, depending on the situations or the stressors or um, the life situation in those immediate moments uh, we have this experience where we're shifting back and forth and that's actually a very normal part of our our life right like for instance uh, we could be hyper aroused during a birthday party for us, right? We're very excited. And that's a very normal part of our experience. It doesn't mean that we're balanced, 
we're very hyper aroused, right? Because this is something for us. And then hypo aroused, right? Like when we're very sad, um, if we experienced a job loss, right? Is that that's also a part of that continuum is that at that given point in time, that's where we're at. And that this is our very normal life experience to feel and to go through these uh, stressors or these situations. Just going back to when it becomes a condition, it's usually if we are hyper aroused for an extended amount of time, right? Like if we're having a lot of energy and then uh, now it's beginning to affect our sleep, it's beginning to affect the way that we communicate with others, then that's where it becomes a condition um, or a criteria uh, for a mental health condition. Um, something that I also want to mention too is that oftentimes folks, or the public normally believes that you have to have a condition to seek mental health services. And um, the reality of it is that we don't have to have a condition to seek uh, therapy or mental health support. Um, we could be seeking clarity, right? Mm -hmm. We could be our baseline. Uh, we could have balance in our lives and we could still seek uh, help or support. Mm -hmm. And um, oftentimes the mental health discussion happens whenever there's a condition or a crisis. And, and usually that affects the, uh, the stigma of, of, of mental health as well. So I just want to, yeah, yeah no, go ahead, Liz. That's, that's so <laughs> important, right? That yeah. like, you know, I think, right. Like when you wait that long, mm -hmm. right. Like that's, it's not healthy and it's, it's so, um, like we, we should be normalizing, right. Checking in with a therapist or, or something like that, just mm -hmm. to, like you said, um, seek clarity. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I was gonna say, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I know that when I was seeing a therapist while in grad school, I went when I was in crisis and my therapist was actually recommending that like, Hey, it's really important to, see a therapist before a crisis happens because you, mm -hmm. you don't want to get to that point. Like you want to have those check-ins. You want to be able to build those skills to be able to cope with different, um, you know, like different challenges that you're going through. So I, I love that you brought that up because it is true. It's, it's very true in terms of, you know, wanting to prevent a crisis from happening or, you know, not just really addressing the crises, right? Like trying to prevent them um, from recurring. Yeah, I will echo that and um, just really appreciate your perspectives, Ko, and especially as like a Hmong man, like I know, I mean, I you may not be in this line of work to like be that role model, but I think it's really inspiring to like have someone um, from the community in that space. So um, just really appreciate that. And on that subject, um, we wanted to also ask about what your perspectives have been around the trends that you're seeing in the Hmong or larger AAPI community um, with, you know, respect to like the severity of mental health conditions um, in particular, like we have seen um, from recent like uh, surveys that have said that like two in 13 Asian uh, native Hawaiian or Pacific Islanders have had serious mental um, illnesses. And so just wanted to ask like what you have seen, like what your perspectives are, are on that. Um, also recognizing that that's not like your specific line of um, issue area, though. Mm -hmm. So in particular, um, with my line of work with adults uh, for the past five and a half years, I've, um, to be honest, like I've come across just a handful of patients who identified as a part of the API community. And, um, you know, and this is also supported uh, by by the research as well is that utilization rate within um, the API community is 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 low. Um, it's quite difficult to capture any mental health trends, um, just given my exposure in, in terms of just where where I work, and then also within um, the research. But I do um, want to have a conversation about just some of the observations that. Um, that I was able to make uh, within the Hmong community. A lot of our um, uh, challenges um, align with um, anxiety, depression, um, adjustment, and substance use disorder. Another trend um, is the unaddressed uh, historical trauma 
that have had a significant mental health impact on the community. And just the research within uh, trauma is that children of survivors often exhibit similar symptoms of trauma exposure as if they themselves lived through the violence. And so uh, the impact of historical trauma and the community aligns with some of these observations, right? Anxiety, depression, uh, increase in uh, suicidality, uh, trauma, stress-related disorders, and uh, substance use, child abuse, partner abuse. And there's this general sense of loss of meaning, uh, despair uh, within our community. So to put a finer point on that, you're talking about intergenerational trauma, right? Uh, yes. What is the difference? Or, okay. Yeah. So uh, historical trauma and um, intergenerational trauma, often it's used interchangeably. But to clarify the differences is that historical trauma is often used to, to describe a collective experience, uh, something that has to do with like multi-generational collective experience of emotional, physical, psychological, systematic, uh, systematic injury to a cultural group or community. Um, and so an example of that, right, within our uh, Hmong community experience is the Vietnam War, uh, the genocide, the displacement of our, com- our, um, our community just throughout the world, right? Uh, intergenerational trauma has a lower scale impact uh, and it's more individualized. Uh, so within family, uh, so there's that distinguish, th- there's that factor where the other one focuses on this collective experience mm-hmm. of, of a group. And then the other one is more individualized. It's within the family uh, mm-hmm. or between uh, people or individuals, actually. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that, KO. Um, I think that's especially important since we've, especially as many of us, I'm sure all of us are like descendants of like, you know, refugees from the war, right. And uh, have all faced our own um, individual family trauma. Um, I think more recently, what we have also seen is this like um, spike or trend in suicide rates among like Hmong youth. And so um wondering if you have any perspective on that, like what are the differences that you've seen between our generational uh, traumas, right? And then also um, how could we help prevent um, these these incidents or these suicides among our, our among youth? Because um, I'm not sure if our listeners or if you know, right, but there's been a lot of like <clears throat> community efforts to really uplift the spirits of our youth and ensure that our youth know that there are resources and support available, um, like with the Chandu concerts in Minnesota and mm-hmm. um, a lot of the um, organizations uh, that are, trying to really support our youth there. So yeah, do you have any perspectives on on these latest issues? First of all, um, I just want to uh, acknowledge that suicide is actually um, a huge tragedy. Um, um, and this is across all communities. You know, the, the research or the data around uh, suicide with youth, and this is, again, across... Um, all communities is that suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth ages 10 uh, to 25. You know, I have a, I have a son who's 11 years old and this is, you know, a big scare for me as, as a father. And I think that a part of trying to understand where some of these concerns are coming from is, is important to understand the life stages of um, whether if it's millennials, whether if it's elders, or whether if it's our youth. And um, uh, the thing about trying to understand from this uh, life stage is that it um, it actually helps us to begin to um, distinguish the different life values and struggles and experiences within that particular life stage. The differences in generations, right? Like millennials and and elders, is that um, millennials they're actually in a stage where they're trying to discover themselves, uh, trying to establish um, relationships for themselves. Whereas with the elders, 
they're actually in a life stage where they're trying to give back. They're trying to make sure that, you know, their kid, their kids succeed, whatever that looks like, right? They're trying to give back to the community. They're trying to search for this higher level of meaning. And so just given those two life stages is that we, we can recognize that they're going to come across very different challenges, very different uh, goals and focuses um, just because they're trying to, you know, fulfill this life stage. And just given the um, context within the, the differences in generations is that if we're unable to adequately address the needs within our life stage is that we fall into despair, we fall into isolation, uh, we fall into depression. And that increases our risk, whether if it's mental health diagnoses, whether if it's risk for suicidality, uh, whether if it's for um, medical conditions. There was a research by one of our colleagues at, uh, at Berkeley. She had mentioned that our, um, our Hmong sisters, they succeed at a cost. And I thought that that statement was very, very powerful. Can you explain a little bit more about that statement? Like, is it like emotional cost or? I mean, the ultimate thing is that um, it has all sorts of impacts. And the ultimate cause is that it, it gets to the point where you lose family members. And that's, that's a huge impact, um, right? That's the cost is that if we're at this point in time where we have very different goals and values, um, and we're taking a different direction. There was actually a, a, a forum done by UC Davis back in 2009 where they, where they had Hmong elders come and talk about some of their challenges. And um, a lot of their concerns um, highlighted a lot of basic needs, right? Like financial needs, uh, trying to put a roof over, um, you know, the family's heads. And if we think about it, is that, a lot of their focus is back on basic needs. It's not on their life stage needs. It actually is really, really hard and stressful uh, trying to navigate uh, how to make sense of, of these life stages and at the same time um, uh, be parents as well. And so it's unique in that being mindful of these different life stage experiences and that it has a huge impact on on uh, the individuals. Yeah, that, that reminds me a lot of, um, there's that book, um, like they did the best they could, um, right? And I th- I know like a lot of us, right, are like, yeah, we are working through kind of, you know, like our relationships with our parents too, right? Like as, as we become adults and are aging and figuring out, oh, like mom and dad did the best they could. They love us and we love them, right? But like we talked. I mean, you, you listened to the to our series. Like, you know, we all, all of us have been um, working through this a lot. So, I, I really appreciate you um, uh, bringing that up. When we think about youth, um, is that I mean, if we think about just development uh, in general, is that our kids um, they actually form a very strong attachments to um, their caregivers. Okay. And that's all, that's, that's how they make sense of the world. And that's how they make sense of who they are. And this is also very indicative of like how they begin to explore the world, right? So for instance, if someone who has a poor attachment uh, relationship, then it actually, research have shown that it impacts their ability to regulate emotions effectively. It impacts their, um, medical uh, challenges later on in life, and it actually increases their risk uh, for suicide. Now, with a, a strong attachment relationship, what that does is it allows the, um, the, the child to explore. A part of our development opens the opportunity to shift our attachment figures to our peers, because um, that's the next step, right, is that we start to form identity and develop who we are from our peer groups. Oftentimes, um, you know, we associate a lot of the uh, bullying, a lot of the hate crimes with um, uh, the peer groups. Bullying and hate comes home at a click of a button, right? Our friends are associated with media. 
media is associated with our friends. And so the way that we're, the way that our youth is developing their identity, the sense of self is it's, it's through these relationships. Now, if they are connected to uh, peer groups that are unhealthy, right? The sense of self is impacted and it can impact them greatly because it's happening everywhere. The experiences are so complex, right? Given the family systems, the unrealistic expectations within the family systems, the guilt, the shame, the loss of face, right? This loyalty within just the family, the roles, and with like, um, especially with like our um, LGBTQ community too, is that trying to navigate all of these developmental stages, uh, the, the, the challenges, and then to be, uh, in a, in a space where you're trying to, uh, navigate this, this dual identity here with all of this going on is that it can create higher risks for, uh, for suicide. Just, I think on that note, thank you, Kayo, for like that very, um, comprehensive, like overview. And I don't think I've, well, for me personally, I don't think I've ever like contextualized it in that sense. And so, understanding where some of our youth or elders are coming from. Like um, we also wanted to dive in, right. Especially in talking about how can we move beyond destigmatizing mental health and actually um, encourage people to seek the support and treatment that they need. And maybe even also beyond that, like talking about like what you mentioned, um, our LGBTQ youth, like, probably struggle a lot or if not the most. And so how do we provide that support to them and make sure that like the communities and our family structures are providing um, the support that they need? Uh, the research shows that there are, are several factors that we can, uh, we can pay attention to and support and to mitigate as much as possible to mitigate these tra tragedies from happening. Um, and there are uh, five of those factors. And this isn't to say that if we are able to address all five of these factors is that we're going to be successful, is that these are factors uh, for us to consider and uh, to think about and to, um, uh, to address um, as much as possible. Uh, the first one is uh, having uh, the cognitive ability to understand how death affects uh, loved ones, okay? So just understanding that uh, if something were to happen to, right, like if something were to happen to me, it would have a huge impact on on their loved ones, okay? Second, the optimism and having a positive orientation towards the future. So the idea of I can still see myself, you know, two weeks from now doing whatever it is that I plan on doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, or yeah. I can see myself graduate. I can, right. So future orientation, that's also a very big protective factor. And then the third is connectiveness with family, friends, and community. The thing with this is that just being able to uh, form that, right. Like that attachment figure, that person that gives us a sense of self um, or that person that helps us to define who we are. The fourth one is having a sense of self-worth, right? Like, I am worth it. I am uh, enough and I deserve uh, to be here, right? Uh, and the last thing is um, uh, social life, just being able to connect uh, and have a place uh, where you belong. Is that these are factors that have shown to, um, to support in reducing uh, suicide risks. Mm -hmm. um, How do we teach that to our youth and even ourselves, man? So I say that because, yeah. you know, sometimes when you grow up in families with intergenerational trauma, right? Like you have parents who will say very mean things to you, but to them, they are expecting you to be better than they were knowing that you have more opportunities than they, they do. So even though they're not trying to, you know, like they're not trying – like trying to put you, you down, down but then they, they do, do right like yeah. dude my parents say the worst things to me and i'm like gosh how do you teach kids to you know have high self-esteem and all of these things that will protect them from having risk for you know these very severe mental health conditions right when their families can't provide that to them so 
I, I can like go ahead and jump in on that. Um, and yeah, I think that like within our own education system, we've realized that social emotional learning is such a big part of our students and of like their whole future that like we are introducing that into the classrooms um, with like part of our main content, you know, it's that social emotional learning, even within like my first graders. And that's from a grade um, uh, age range of six to seven year olds. We're talking about our feelings. We're talking about, uh, we do check-ins every day. We do the zones of regulation. How are you feeling? Why are you feeling that way? It's like, it's just like giving them that early dose to be proactive about their health. Like I can identify that I feel this way because of this way and that it's okay to feel this way and I'm okay to change my feelings. I don't have to feel like this all day long. And I know that like, especially on the distance learning, a lot of parents complain that like, you know, our time that we have to together, our synchronized time, you know, during our Google Meets or Zoom uh, meetings are like not worth it because there's no content in it. But all of that time is that social emotional learning that they need to get that they're missing out yeah. on because they're not all around their peers and like teachers and stuff. And so like, you know, like I've heard like complaints, like, why are you wasting time talking about feelings? You know, and it's like, that's because that's the biggest part of, you know, a child's development, because if they're not feeling in the right zone, do you think that learning productive learning is going to happen if they're not mentally, emotionally yeah. ready for that? So like, you know, our schools are realizing that and we're we're slowly we're slowly adding that in um you know but then it's also like because of like our, our generational difference between like you know when we went to school and how school is like now it's hard for parents to understand like the importance of like talking about feelings and so that's what teachers are doing during their meetings and maybe you don't see it as value but we do and the students do and they love talking about their feelings because they want to feel valid and they want to have a voice too and that's where kids do get a voice and where they can talk about something that isn't related to how smart you are but yourself and so it's always trying to feed in that like self-worth you're enough um you're great i'm happy you're here today and you know it doesn't matter how you're feeling it's valid and you can always change your feelings yes feelings matter mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. sure but i did also want to ask like why is there such a disconnect right like you know, from from our parents who who expect that, oh, like yelling at you and criticizing you is meant to be positive, right? Mm -hmm. But then like, you know, it's received in such like a, a like in the a complete opposite way, right? Like, and it's, it, it's like face value is like a, a miscommunication, but like, why, why is there that miscommunication that's so like fundamental, right? Like, how, how could like two people come at something um, <laughs> it's from such a different angle, right? Like, and maybe it's because they assume that they raised you. And so like, you know, you, you understand what they mean, but like not everyone picks up on that. So I don't know if that's something that we want to tackle, but I, it, to me, it's always been interesting. So a lot of these questions and uh, comments, um, they're actually right pointing at the core, right? Is that how come there's this disconnect and where's, where can we bridge it? Where if, you know, a comment was said, how could we bridge that connection so that there isn't this uh, uh, mismatch, right? The research says that stress and a lot of our life challenges is that we're unable to manage and control the things that come into our lives, right? Like the stressors, the situations, but it's how we, it's how we respond to stress and how we are supported through it. So the responsive uh, relationships. Um, is is integral in in having that match when you are going through a hard time right like our kids are going through a hard time um just allowing them to exist and make sense for themselves what's happening and that we are in the parent child relationship is that the parents are allowing the child to explore what that is and that they can still exist okay and even with, I mean, this isn't to like explain how come in particular situations there's a disconnect. It's that even with difficult uh, conversations or difficult experiences with family members is that there was the responsiveness from, uh, from that experience uh, to still move beyond what that conflict was. Okay. So being able to just uh, support each other, exist and, and move forward. So like, I sort of have like a, 
it's sort of triggering just because like for me um two months ago um a friend of my husband he committed suicide um Mm -hmm. because my husband's a veteran and he was a veteran and they served during you know um the heat of the war and you know it's sort of like what can we do to prevent suicide and what can we do for the survivors because i think that that's like a um big issue you know it's like those that are left behind and you know it's sort of like you know, it's not just like one person who we have lost to suicide, but it's like a, like, you know, it's like a whole portion of our circle, you know, and this is like things that they've done in their youth when they were like 18 and 19 and we're all in our thirties and to hear these news, you know, and it's hard to even catch up with each other. And, you know, this is the news that you hear, like, what can we do for those that are still here? Yeah. Um, so Katie, yeah, that's a really, um, that's a really good question too, because it's not just um, trying to prevent, right? And it's also trying to find the resources to support as well. In this situation, it is truly trying to find a space to be able to process and and um, and talk about that experience because it is such a huge tragedy and it has such an impact on um, our life, right? To lose someone in that way and finding the the space to to uh, to talk about what that loss was like, and then at the same time to also allow ourselves right to reflect and 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 see how that has impacted us, right? Because oftentimes the thing with um, with loss is that we don't talk about grief, we don't talk about bereavement, and it's usually at a corner that's that's being uh, talked about. And to, to be able to have these conversations and to connect to what this loss meant and how much it impacted um, us is going to, uh, to help us uh, sort of uh, move forward from, from what happened. Thank you. That was all really great advice for those that need it. Um, I think that's something that we do forget because we're always on the go in our daily lives that sometimes we forget to find that space to just really reflect and, you know, um, whether it's to honor that person or just to think about all the things that has happened and how that's affected you, because I think we like to bury that and move on. I, I also want to add maybe a little piece to it, right? Where um, I think I I was speaking to a friend who um, is also in the mental health field. She's also Hmong. And um, one of the things she said is, I mean, she, she approaches this also from a, like a, a critical race lens where she was like, well, you know, um, I, you know, this is like, these are all kind of like conditions that like, you know, white people have have researched and like, you know, named, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, like in Laos and like, you know, where we're from, right? Like, um, you know, the question is, right, did we, did people always have these mental health conditions or like, you know, did we just like, um, and because of the trauma, like, do we just think that this is just survival, right? And, and so like, maybe, maybe, you know, attributing certain um, labels and stuff to to the behaviors of um, people in our community. Um, maybe that's also like not the best way to go about this and like to heal. Um, so I mean, I, I, I'm not sure like if if there's a answer, but I don't know if you also want to touch upon that because I think um, part of the stigmatization is also just like maybe, you know, like you don't believe it exists, right? And and like you question like, you know, whether um, we should contextualize like um, behaviors that we see in our community, like with this, this model, right? Um, I know you guys use this like specific book to diagnose people. I forget what it's called. <laughs> But she was just like, you know, like when you think about it, it's it's like from a really like white perspective. And so that was just like her her thought that maybe sometimes um, you know, the 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 people and the subjects that like have been researched on to come up with like this this book may also have not been like the most diverse set of like of data, right? And so mm-hmm. um yeah, just just giving context to that question also about um stigmatization and um, you know, making um I guess mental health like culturally competent for our community. Like I'll I'll be the first to say it is that you know it isn't it isn't um, a perfect system, right? It's constantly um, changing, evolving. Uh, the DSM is the is the book is is the book that you're referring to, <laughs> and even with the DSM, right, is that there's uh, there's constant additions. Right now, we're currently in the fifth edition. I can I can definitely say that there's been 
improvements. And then, of course, there's um, a lot of room for uh, growth as well. Um, one of the, I forget what the diagnosis is 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 um, is called at this moment, but at some point, the DSM was diagnosing uh, individuals for having a cultural affinity, and um, and that was a diagnosis. Recent studies have shown that oh, that diagnosis was taken out just and. Um, and recognizing that, you know, like cultural affinity is a part of our, our, our human experience, right? Acknowledging that, you know, just because someone has uh, this connection with their culture doesn't mean that it's a mental health diagnosis. You know, mental health in, in, in general does have a very Eurocentric approach is that um, it has very different values from uh, you know the Hmong community, where it's it it is more communal, it is more family uh, oriented, and so a Eurocentric uh, approach is very individualized, and so that could be very um, uh, difficult to distinguish what's considered a condition if we're talking about these factors that these factors that are part of our our human experience, especially in a particular community, right? And so having these shifts and having these developments and having these uh, changes uh, can definitely go towards destigmatizing uh, mental health. You know, even with like uh, the uh, monthly awareness, right? We have mon- mental health months. And so uh, recognizing that, hey, you know what? We're going to give attention and time to talk about it, okay? Another approach to de- destigmatizing mental health is to um, to truly focus, um, and this is uh, actually coming from like the individual uh, approach, right? Is that is to refocus our efforts to what is within our control, okay? What is it that we can focus on, and and what we can control is our story, right? How we feel about mental health, and uh, to find a safe source. And uh, to find uh, those supports so that we can continue on those conversations. Um, and society, it doesn't change quickly. And so it's going to be important for us to continue to stay our course. That was great. Um, I, I think maybe also um, just shifting gears slightly, like um, from, from my end. I mean, you know, I, I think when you said, you know, uh, control what you can. Um, I'm just curious from, from a mental health professional's perspective, like, you know, I, I use the word like crazy all the time. Right. And I know like, um, in certain uh, cultures and I I don't want to say who, but people like, like there's a common word they say, Oh, like you're mental. Right. Or like that's mental. And so I'm just curious, um, you know, also like what, what steps can, can people take, you know, on an individual basis to, um, to also right right not contribute to the stigmatization or like are there um you know alternative words right that like we can use um you know and and maybe sometimes it's not always bad right like you know when you say oh that's crazy good or like that's crazy <laughs> awesome right like mm-hmm. um you know how can we be better um in in the language that we use because like words do matter right um you know and our children and like you know our younger um you know siblings like they're people are listening to us every single day um, so just just curious if you know you have like tips for our listeners and for us too even right because we're we're always like trying to be better. So the thing about language is is our right it's our form of communication and um, uh, no doubt uh, when something like that is said is that whether or not right their intention is to call us that or to right send a message is that it still hurts. Right, it still hurts, and uh, it's important to acknowledge that. And then, um, in terms of the efforts to focus our attention to um, what's within our control, is is to come from this um, compassionate approach, where it's seeking understanding. Because oftentimes, when we don't understand something, we label it, we call it something that could sort of help us feel better in that moment, but it doesn't address the concerns. And that um, it is to seek an understanding uh, in a in a more compassionate approach. I was going to add, or um, I think 
I've learned that I can't expect people to have the same level of mental resilience that I probably do, right? Because some people are affected by events differently and they're going to have a certain emotional response to it compared to me. So I think also when we talk about like destigmatizing, I feel like that's also a way to be like, you know what? The support that you need is very different from the support that I need and that's completely okay, right? So like to let go of which will allow that person to just kind of let go of the guilt or the shame for wanting that extra support. So I feel like that's also a piece of it. But yeah, I, I think that this is a good um, time for it, Kayo. And uh, again, really just appreciate all of the context and the individual uh, tips and just advice, I guess, um, for us and for everyone listening on how we can take just small steps in our daily lives to um, you know, create new behaviors and norms to uh, better support our own mental health needs and the communities, right? And so we want to shift into um, an additional conversation about, you know, at the policy level, right? Um, where are the gaps and, you know, what can we be doing and what should we be doing at the policy level um, to help support the destigmatizing of mental health and to uh, encourage um, more support, right? And, and for research, right? Like you talk a lot about research, like why, and maybe just talk about why research and why funding for research is so important, um, especially for our communities that are so um, often overlooked or um, often underserved and under-researched, right? Um, so yeah, what are your perspectives there, uh, Ko? We, we've been talking about this approach of like overall health. And uh, there's, there isn't one factor that could improve our mental health, but multiple factors. And um, I love that. You know, it's just, like a multi-pronged approach, right? Like right. many, many factors, <laughs> many, many yeah. factors. Yeah. Yeah. So there are so many factors that go into our mental health. And, uh, you know, some of the policies that fall within uh, the field of mental health, and one of them that's, uh, I believe it's currently happening right now is the Mental Health Services for Students Act uh, 2020 uh, that provides uh, school-based mental health services and support to assist schools and, and local communities. And this is, I believe it's to support um, uh, wellness centers on campus. And I think that this is something that's really important, right, to address and support our um our, uh, our children, our youth. And then, you know, the conversations around like comprehensive universal healthcare, right? Is yes. that, um, <laughs> it's that it's healthcare for all and to include mental health treatment as well. And then I think it's really important for, for us to um, evaluate what quality of life and overall mental well-being looks like for us, okay? And what could help improve that wellness, Right. And, you know, just to throw some uh, policies out there, um, even with like housing policy, right, like shortages of yes. like affordable housing in the country is mm -hmm. that housing mm -hmm. is really important to improve mental health problems. Um, and um, the research shows that inability to access uh, sustainable home spaces is associated to increase anxiety, mental uh, mental illness. And so, um just being able to address housing policy will uh, will positively impact children and family. And then, you know, another thing too is like improvement in employment policy, right? Support for uh, maternity and paternity leave increases uh, the support for early stages of, of development. You know, other countries completed research and found that uh, with this kind of support, it's it's beneficial and that they've implemented into their policies. And um, I think that that's something that uh, could be helpful as well. So um, you're saying like everything is tied to our mental health, <laughs> like basic needs, right? Like housing, yeah. um, healthcare uh, access, and just um, good schools, right? Like what you're saying, um, all of these things are interconnected um, mm -hmm. and can help really support our individual uh, mental health needs, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I feel like behavioral health is always kind of like the stepchild within healthcare. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. no one really takes it seriously because when you think of medical care, you think of physical health, right? And there's this movement to help people understand that holistic health is like 
emotional health, you know, mental health, physical health, it's all tied together. Um, So before we close today's episode, I think that this pandemic has really shown us how important mental health is. (laughs) We know the toll that our frontline workers and our teachers and uh, essential workers are facing, um, whether that's economically or whether that's like the stress of the workload um, for parents who are working from home, like the additional stress of having to kind of homeschool their kids on some days, right? So working through this pandemic together, um, you know, Kale, do you have some tips that you can share with our listeners so that they can also, you know, do their best in taking care of their emotional health and their mental health? With the with the pandemic, right, it, it changed a lot of the things that we would normally do, right? We're having to redefine um, this new normal for us. And um, I think it's really important for us to um, engage in that, right? Lean into that and, and, and see what that looks like for us, right? Redefining the way that we interact with each other. Uh, redefining the conversations that we have with each other. At the same time, also recognize that uh, there are these changes that are happening and they're so out of our control. Like for instance, with like distance learning is that it is so hard for, um, for our uh, parents, our, our, our guard, our, our caregivers to now having to be teachers at home. And, and that feeling this sense of, oh, I'm unable to support, right? And recognize that, you know what, like continue to be the parent and continue to acknowledge that, you know what, like our kids are going through this and that this is their experience and that they're also having a hard time. Um, Is that it's very difficult to, right, lean into what's new because it's it's very uncomfortable. And, uh, to allow this process to open and 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 happen is going to help us uh, not control the factors that we are unable to control, but to focus on the factors that we're able to uh, control. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. I I feel like we've learned so much from you today. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. not just a mental health one hundred and one, but really prevention, you know, destigmatizing and even even talking about policy at the end, right? So I feel, you know, I think our listeners are going to really find this episode useful. So I want to thank you for taking your time to speak with us today and our listeners on how men- how important mental health is and how important mental health support is within our community. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Um, we'll have our resources listed again, like in our uh, episode resources page. Um, really want to recognize Keo, who came here on his own personal time on a Sunday morning. Um, really appreciate you. And thank you to all of our listeners. We hope that today was really helpful. And um, we hope that we can continue this conversation because it is um, extremely important to us and to our community. So, ciao, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.